Welcome to the Creative Endeavor Podcast. This is the podcast bringing you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. It's real conversations with real artists. And I'm Andrew Tischler. Such a pleasure to have your company in the studio once again. In this podcast, I'm talking to Patrick Okrasinski, who's an artist based in New Jersey in the United States. He does some incredible plein air work and studio painting with such fresh and alive brushwork bursting with color. It really is traveling in the same vein as some of my favorite artists from the 19th century. Those artists who got outside and captured the environment plein air and painted beautifully, realistically, but at the same time maintained a painterly quality. Patrick's work really has that quality for me. Now, I've only been following Patrick on Instagram relatively recently, but every time I see one of his posts, I'm inspired to pick up my plein air kit, head outside and paint. I just love the way he distills that natural beauty onto the canvas. Now, I wanted to geek out with Patrick here in this conversation all about the painting process, and we certainly did that. But there's plenty of other stuff in this podcast episode as well. We get into his inspiration, his journey, how he started, and a little bit about his relationship with his art business and social media and things like that. So there's a lot here to get your teeth into. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you will too. But before we get into this, I'm gonna ask you to do me a huge favor. Would you please share this episode on your social media? Share it with your friends and family. Let people know where you're getting the inspiration while you paint in the studio. If you're listening to these podcasts while you're slinging that paint, I really appreciate it. And also, if you could leave me a rating or a review on whatever podcast audio platform you're listening on. Thank you so much for taking that time and effort to do that. It really helps me share this show with more people. Now, one more thing before we get stuck into it, you're listening to the audio version, but there is a full video version complete with visuals that you will find right now on Tish Academy. Go to tish.academy. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. And I share the full video version with my students there who are following on the Tish Academy. You'll see myself and Patrick in our studios and you'll also see some of these amazing works that Patrick is sharing with us. So if you want to see the video version, then make sure you follow that on Tish Academy. I'll see you there. Okay, I'm going to get out of here. Let Patrick take over. Here he is. This is Patrick Okrasinski in The Creative Endeavor. Well, Patrick, it is awesome to have you here on the Creative Endeavor podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Andrew. The pleasure is all mine. Uh, yeah, I was telling you a second ago that I've seen your videos for like a super long time. And so a lot of that's been, you know, pretty inspirational for me. And it's cool to see what you've done. And yeah, some of the art, some of the work you do is really epic and really big and really grand. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of inspiring stuff, dude. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I, listen, I got to say, you're inspiring me. It's so inspiring seeing this um, studio behind you. Um, I feel sorry for the people that are just listening to the audio version of this podcast because we get to see these amazing po uh, paintings that you've got. I, I, I love your approach. I, I, I feel like I've got a little bit of an insight into how you make pictures just from the wealth of information that you're sharing on your social media. You know, there's a couple of little process snippets here and there, which has been really interesting. And I, I got to say, this um, painting behind you, I, I, I let I just just kick things off. I want to ask you about this particular painting of the of the statue that kind of um, you've got a horse in the foreground. Where is that from? Tell me about that that piece and, and how that one came together, because that that is just epic. It's got such a beautiful feeling to it. Oh, um, thanks. I I recently finished that. And so right now it's just kind of waiting to be taken upstairs into the dining room to be hanging on the wall. Uh, and it's it's of the Trevi Fountain. And it was based on a plein air painting I did when I was visiting a friend in Rome early back in June of this year. And it was a two-day plein air painting and it was... It was probably one of the best plein air paintings I've done this year. Uh, one of the ways I can like easily just assume that's the case is because uh, I see which paintings resonate with people through social media. It's almost like gathering statistics. It's very easily you can just compare posts and see what resonates and see the comments and whatnot. Uh, but like even aside from that, there are a few things about the plein air piece that I did for that painting that I really liked and that I thought were sort of coming into a different level. You know, sometimes you, you're painting, you're painting and painting is sort of like a batting average, you know, what's like a mediocre painting for you. What's a bad painting. What's a good painting. And in a few ways, I thought that the plein air piece uh, went really above what my normal batting average was. And it's mostly in the sense of light and color temperatures that I was experimenting with. And uh, one of the things I've been wanting to do lately in my personal work is to make larger, more ambitious paintings. So not just small plein air paintings that are one, maybe two days, maybe sometimes three, depending on the situation. But, you know, really get into painting and really really get into the nitty gritty stuff. Cause as much as, as much fun as plein air painting is, there's something to be said about pulling off a really nice studio painting, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. It's, 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 it's also, I mean, when you finish anything, it's a great feeling. I, I was, I, I've always been a starter. Um, I'm, I'm getting better at it the, the, the further I get in my career. But when I first started out, I always found it very difficult to finish things. But when you, you know, starting all kinds of things, but then finishing something and feeling that sense of accomplishment, particularly a big, a big studio piece. It's good. It's good. Um, look, man, I, I, I really, um, I, you've mentioned a few things there in regards to, you know, a bit of process. You've also just, we're touching on, on the social media side of things. I want to dive deep into all of that. Let's kick things off though. I really want to hear your story because right now, I hope you don't mind me saying this. You're a young dude. <laughs> you're, you, you look like you, you haven't 
you know, you've got years and years, decades, hopefully in front of you uh, of, a, of a career. And already at this stage, you are so good. You are so dang good. Your plain airs are jaw dropping. I love the, this studio piece. I, and I, I loved, again, just back to this piece, seeing that evolution from that plain air, how it was worked into a bigger piece. All of the essence of that plain air was there in the bigger piece. That was great to see, but it still maintained this painterly quality. It's it's fantastic. Tell me about your start and how you how you first got into art and how you kind of found your feet here because it looks like you're you're on a thread that's really working for you. So how did this journey begin? Oh gosh. Um uh, I was, you know, I th I think like many of the people that we meet in the in this art community that we live in uh it's just like modern representational painting, realist painting, modern impressionism, whatever you want to call that. Uh, you know, like everyone, I always loved to paint and draw from when I was really, really young. Uh, personally, I didn't have a lot of really good uh, education at first. So, you know, there were art programs in my public schools that I went to in New Jersey where I grew up in, here in the U.S., uh, and they weren't really good. They didn't really teach me how to draw or paint. It seems that at that point, at a certain point, that knowledge wasn't that accessible. And so when I was really young, I just drew a lot of different stuff, cartoons or stuff like that, like Naruto figures fighting or like Greek gods or a lot of random stuff from my education. Uh, and it was enough to just get me to keep with it to when I was in high school and I was a teenager, I somehow found out about uh, illustration, concept art, that sort of world through just like a bunch of online forums and maybe some YouTube videos. Uh, I remember back then I was watching guys like Feng Zhu or maybe Proko or uh, Watts Atelier if they were around mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of get that time period messed up, like what was in high school and what was in like freshman or sophomore year of college. Mm. You know, what did what video did I watch when I was 16 or what video did I watch when I was 19? I don't really remember. Um, but, you know, uh, YouTube was a great source for that. Online forums were a great source for that. Uh, separately, I had seen like Hudson River painters uh, through like the textbooks because that was always just like on the cover of some random book in school, just because it was like, oh, it's an American painting of like, and this is on the Ralph Waldo Emerson cover or something. Uh, and I was always really, really drawn to those paintings uh, through the more commercial side of things, which there were a bunch of different forums and websites for. I sort of got more drawn in to... You can get really, really bogged down in semantics, but I would I would generally describe it as uh, classical painting. Mm -hmm. uh, broadly speaking, that about uh, painting in a certain tradition from the 19th century to maybe the 17th century. Uh, you know, painting that looks back at John Singer Sargent or Diego Velasquez. I would broadly classify that as just like classical with lowercase c painting not particularly like neoclassical as like neoclassical rigid david painting but broadly speaking through illustration i w was like pushed towards uh the old masters like sergeant soroya 
that Spanish guy, uh, Zorn, that Spanish guy, forgive me. Um, but you know, those big three and then mm -hmm. a lot of smaller artists and then, uh, the Russian wanderers. So Shishkin and Leviton, a uh, little bit of Monet. And then by the time I was a sophomore in college, after starting to pursue more commercial digital illustration, learning slowly a little bit about, uh, actual, like the actual history of painting and painters and art not just commercial art, but uh, there's a lot of really, really amazing things being done in like the golden age illustrators in America, for example. So, you know, some commercial art, I think does rise to that level of high art. Mm -hmm. uh, I eventually found out about uh, Mark D'Alessio's blog, who's a landscape painter you're probably familiar with. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic artist. Yeah. Yeah. And then I found out about another guy who you might be less familiar with because he's not as active as he used to be a decade ago when blogs were a really big thing. But there used to be a landscape painter named Stapleton Kearns who had a really active blog. Right. Uh, he studied with Ives Gamel, uh, this guy teaching in Boston who who basically taught, taught Richard Lack and through Richard Lack, there was also some connection into uh, Daniel Graves and the Florence Academy. And so coming back full circle, a lot of the academic education that is out there nowadays sort of ties back into that Boston Impressionist way of thinking about drawing and painting, uh, you know, painting the visual impression, painting, uh, painting what you see, being very specific about what that means. And then like, as influences like you know the greats that were considered then they had uh, a great admiration for not only Sargent not only Monet but Velasquez and mm -hmm. it's that line of thought that thinks that Velasquez is the first impressionist in a way because he was the first person to really paint what he was seeing by the time you look at some of his older paintings uh and I took so long story short I found it the blogs I took a workshop with Stapleton Kearns I thought he was so funny. It made such an impression on me that I decided to drop out of college after my sophomore year and go to, to study at uh, at a school that existed for the time in New Jersey, in the U.S., uh, right across the water from New York City called the Florence Academy of Art and mm -hmm. their U.S. branch. And the Florence Academy of Art still exists in Florence. Uh, there are some very slight differences. It was the same exact program, but because of the actual teachers that I had there, uh, the actual teachers I studied with, so like Jordan Sokol, Amaya Gerpide, uh, Stephen Bauman. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Stephen, but maybe they're not aware that he used to teach at that school that I actually got to study with him for like almost four years with. And so that was awesome. awesome. Uh, and also Cornelia Hearns and Eddie Roshot. And so those are like my big five teachers that I actually learned from when I was there. And it was a very figurative school i mean we were drawing and painting from the figure we were also doing portraits we were doing bargs we were doing casts uh some people criticize those academies as uh you know claiming to be classical but not really being classical at all because oh they don't do it, it exactly as they did it in like this place or this place but generally i i would support the statement that you know, schools like that atelier or uh, similarly schools like 
uh, Lime Academy, Grand Central, uh, Barcelona. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few other acad academies, but uh, generally these academies look at the past tradition of drawing and painting. They draw their inspiration from different artists and different ways of teaching, and there was never one right way of doing things. But they draw on that tradition, and they also look at those artists such as Velasquez or Sargent or Reynolds or Harold Speed or Solomon J. Solomon. And so it's drawing on that point in history where representational art was sort of as high water mark, whatever you'd say. Yeah. Uh, because obviously in the 19th century, people were painting at a level that was I'd say nowadays we're almost getting back to it, almost in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, culturally, it was just much more culturally significant painting, mm -hmm. the place that it had in society back then than it does now. Uh, but for a very long time, you know, the skill set, it, it almost felt that it was sort of lost. And so that was part of the reason why people looked at the past. And I think nowadays it still makes sense to look at the past because of the tradition, because of the greats that the giants that we get to stand on the shoulders of and all these people made all these great paintings. And uh, it's good to have that conversation with that and to have that dialogue. Maybe it's more of like an artsy fartsy way of saying that. Um, Yeah. And so I went, I studied there for like four years from 2016 to 2020, right when the pandemic started. And at that point I was already sort of like academied out. I had like enough. I was like, okay, I'm like good with painting naked people for now. Like I think <laughs> I think I won't regret leaving school at this point. Mm -hmm. There was part of me that uh, was saying to myself, okay, right now uh, I'm young. I still have some neuroplasticity in me. Uh, if you want to really learn to draw and paint at a really, really high level, you probably should push yourself as hard as you can for a period in your life before you go and try to make your own work. And I always had the idea that I would make and focus on landscape painting when I'd get out. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've trying, been trying to like find my footing and land my feet since then. And I think the past year and a half, I've things have really picked up and I've been able to piece some things together in terms of actually building a career through that. Uh, they don't lie when they tell you being an artist is tough, uh, but it's been interesting. It's it's a lot of work. We can get into that. We could we could definitely get into that. Um, yeah, so much you seem you... to be doing really well. You know, I'm like well, taking some inspiration from some of the things that you're doing. Uh, like on one hand, it's awesome that it's a really accessible. Uh, it's scalable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it also is uh, it's a really, really great thing that more people are able to find out about the type of art that we make. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as much as, you know, the world is a scary place at the moment, I think in terms of uh, opportunities for artists, it's, it's an interesting time to be an artist and take advantage of those things like social media. But we have more of an opportunity now, I, I think, than ever we, we, we had before, which is... Um, this opportunity to diversify our, our revenue streams that come in. And when you're an artist, there are so many different things that you can do, so many strings to that bow, so to speak, that um, I think it's, um, it's wonderful. If you can handle that, that diffusion of attention 
um, which which I, I still struggle with from time to time. If you can handle that and manage that, then I think you could still do a really good job on both, you know, the business side of things, but also your creative development. Just want to, I just want to touch on something um, that you said. It was just a little word that you threw in there: neuroplasticity. I, I love that. Is there? I, 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 I want to feel like the older I get, I, um, I'm going to continue to learn. And I'm going to continue to develop and my skills are going to get better. I hope, you know, they, they always say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm not that old yet. Hopefully one day I will be. Uh, but I, I want to feel like I'm still able to learn. But do you, re do you reckon there's something to that, that, that when you're younger, that it's, it's important for younger people to, to get into this and just go all in and really push that side? Uh, Two-part answer to that. Yeah. One of the things about drawing and painting that I think is amazing is because I fully believe you can keep getting better until the day you die, like 100%, without a doubt. Uh, it's different from sports, being an athlete. You know, in physical endeavors, you definitely have a peak. <clears throat> in creative endeavors, maybe you have a peak to your career because of external reasons, you know, society tastes pop like styles can change. Uh, but I think personally for a sense of personal fulfillment, you can definitely keep getting better and keep trying new things and keep growing until you go blind. I don't know. And maybe they'll cure that soon. As when it comes to what I said by neuroplasticity, I think there is a reality to learning any skill. And I think if you want to be really, really good at something, a harsh reality is that you have to compare yourself to others. When it comes to art, Art is still really, really personal, and you don't have to be the best. You don't have to be better than everyone else to be a to be a great artist and to have really impactful and really emotional pieces. There are these all these other factors when it actually comes to art and what resonates with people. Maybe I should say, if you want to be able to paint technically and to draw very 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 well at a certain level if you can even try to get close to being comparable to the old masters like it helps starting early i don't think it's any coincidence that sergeant was drawing since the time he was like four you know mm -hmm. uh so if anyone's listening to this that's like 14 or 16 or 18 or even 20 i th and if they're like on the fence about making a jump um maybe i shouldn't like give them all like the warning scary stuff of like oh like being an artist is really difficult like maybe don't think about it uh <laughs> like caution to the wind if you are really really young and if you are seriously thinking about pursuing a life and a career in the arts it depends what kind of art you want to make but if you want to make representational art a lot of artists historically have said that drawing is the key to that 
And I think that there's an aspect to learning to draw that you will learn much faster uh, and ultimately it will sort of push your ceiling further up if you go study earlier on at a very intense place that's very focused. That was my that was my personal thinking. I was 19 at the time I was a sophomore in college and I didn't really like my program. I didn't really feel challenged. I thought a lot of the instructors at this illustration program couldn't really draw that well to begin with. And, and I really wanted to draw and paint, you know, like to me, illustration, uh, concept art sounded like a fun job where I could still do things I'm interested in, but it's not what I'd be super passionate about. And then the idea that, oh, you could actually get by making your own work and you know, figuring out how to find a way to connect that and actually make a living. So that's like totally, totally possible. Mm-hmm. And then you can go focus on actually learning how to really, really, really draw. And to me, that sounded like just really exciting. And I, yeah, I thought I would just be wasting my time away if I finished that program at that point. And it was a little bit of a joke, but it was a little bit of honesty. I figured, okay, well, I don't really know how much there is to neuroplasticity. Obviously, if I started learning at like five, it would be a lot better. But I think uh, starting at 20 would probably be better than 22. But I don't know. Uh, I I don't know. <laughs> it, it's still, it's, it's, something, it's something that I do think about often, though. Like, I because... You know, I, I have had people tell me, it's like, oh, you know, and, and mainly people that don't paint, you know, oh, you're talented or clever or, you know, you, you've got some sort of gift. And I, I wonder about how much of that is is just in a, just built in and how much of that was just just hard, just grit, just grinding it out in the studio, putting in the time, putting in those brush miles, so to speak. Because um, I could say, like, when I first started out, I, I didn't have anywhere near the skill level that I do now. It, it, it takes time. But for me, learning and remaining open and trying to receive new lessons, that's that's an ongoing thing. That's an ever, and it continues to open and open. It's like that thing. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but it's like, well, it, it, you would have heard, you know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And, and I, I heard this great analogy. It's kind of like a light in a darkened room that the when the light is small, that that boundary of the known to the unknown is relatively small but as the light gets bigger that boundary of known to unknown is even greater and so it's like this this unfolding process so i i'd love to feel like um yeah it, it was it was certainly possible to to continue to learn i'm convinced that that that, that we can but it's just super interesting when i when i find somebody um that is at a particular level and they're, and, and again, I'm, I'm really sorry to patronize, I don't mean to, do, to patronize at all, but they're already painting like just amazing work like yourself. I'm wondering, yeah, this guy, this guy also started at four, <laughs> you know, but um, it's, it's cool. It's cool hearing about uh, some of those early influences because I, I was also on, um, I think it was CG art, uh, CG art, and then there was art station. Um, it's still around today, but I think it was CG Hub or, or there was a, there was one that's no longer around. I forget the name. Um, 
concept art? Yeah, it was concept art. Yeah. Or is it conceptart.org or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And, and uh, I was looking at, yeah, Fang Zhu and, and a lot of those. I, I, I originally wanted to be a matte painter for movies, but then I found out, oh, they're not painting anymore. It's all digital. Oh, miss that one. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I, it's just interesting because I, 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 I hear that we had very similar backgrounds there. So what were these first, the, the, your first steps into doing this professionally? Because you're now full time, right? So what, what were those first steps into this, uh, into this journey like for you? It was weird. I haven't had another job since... I sort of lost the part-time job I was doing while I was a student because my time as a student ended when I went with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And at that point I was uh, doing some work as like a valet in restaurants. And I had been doing that since like I ended high school and it was all right for a part-time job that let me focus on school during the weekdays. And I haven't really had another job since but the pandemic, uh, I, I had a little bit of leeway because I wasn't really expected to get a job because like the world like came to a halt basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what I ended up doing for a, a few things, almost to buy myself a little bit more time because the world came to a halt, I didn't know exactly what to do. I ended up going to finish my bachelor's and I went back to the same school, but it was mostly online teaching at the time because the pandemic and I sort of bought myself like two more years of trying to like, okay, I could like go do that and I'll have like two years to appease my parents and like, uh, to like answer their questions. Like, what are you doing? You know, that like they come from a background, they're very practical minded people of like, what are you going to do? Uh, and basically Long story short, I kept plugging away at a lot of different things for those two years. I spent minimal time focusing on my studies and I spent a lot of time painting and I thought about applying into jury shows and competitions and I was applying for residencies and grants and I had some good experiences with residencies and grants. Uh, this one grant that I got that was really really helpful for my career and probably you know, in hindsight, probably very life-changing was the Donald journey traveling fellowship. It was basically a check to go paint in Europe for a bit. And nice. like, it doesn't get better than that. I like, it was awesome. And like, ah, it was awesome. And I tried taking that as far as I could visiting as many places I could seeing as many as museums as I could. And Going and actually seeing museums, maybe that's not super helpful to your actual career, but I think it's super helpful to your development as an artist to actually go see oh, yeah. paintings in person and really expose yourself to a lot of different painting, a lot of different art, and you never know what might really catch your eye. And uh, th There's this whole other struggle of uh, not just learning or figuring out ways to be financially successful as an artist, but also to develop yourself as an artist after you come out of schools like that. I think maybe one of the biggest, I don't know if I'd say downsides, but one of the biggest struggles for a lot of people that go to academies, ateliers, 
is they run the risk of coming out the other end looking like everybody else. And then they have to do a lot of unlearning of certain things or a lot of just discovery of trying to find your way. And so it was a full two years almost. Well, it's been three and a half years since I was last in school, but it's only been that past two and a half or one and a half year that I've really had some traction. And there were some, what I felt were false starts of, I made a painting. I had some good feedback. I wasn't really personally satisfied with the painting I make because of the process or things like that. Um, but for me, the biggest break came not from getting into any galleries, but this might just sound silly, but when I started getting a lot of traction on my social media, particularly on my Instagram, uh, in many, many ways, that's been the most helpful thing to my own career because I've centered a lot of the different things and the different baskets with my eggs and off of social media. And rather than focusing on any one big ticket items, some artists make a living off of selling two paintings a year. To me, that sounds really, really stressful. So I just have a bunch of small things that I've started doing, uh, obviously selling my paintings, selling small paintings, mostly through social media, one thing, uh, doing in-person workshops, doing uh, recently a little bit of online teaching that I've started, You know, figuring out what it takes to make a YouTube channel, what it takes to make a Patreon. So that for a little bit of consistency, uh, I've made and sold my own plein air boxes because I made my yeah, own plein air box to go cool. travel painting. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, I've got one... I mean, I don't know. I don't want to become like a woodworker, but just like, because I actually enjoy making things a bit when I need to take a break mm -hmm. from painting. And I have one that I made that's like super lightweight. It weighs like less than a pound and a half. And it's like 11 by 14 and a half. Go, go, go and pick it up. Again, I feel sorry for the people that are that are listening to the audio version and don't get to see this. I, I, want, to, I want a product uh, reveal here, Patrick. <clears throat> This is my oh, wow. personal one, the first edition, and yeah. it's really minimalist. It closes down. It's about an inch wide after it closes mm -hmm. down. This one's 11 by 14 inches. Uh, and I just, it's just the wooden palette of the plywood. And I really like working on the wooden surface. But the second one that I recently made, and you need to like touch it to feel it. But so it wow. has this like really nice walnut veneer on it. I don't so know the type of wood on the plywood, but the difference is that this is like less than an inch thick. It's like wow. 0.8 inch. So I don't know if I'm going to have to retire uh, my old box personally and just start using this one because ah, just the walnut it's beautiful so so what you're you're actually attaching your panels to the to the lid when it's open but how are you how are you transporting your panels in and out of the field so obviously your panel storage your painting storage is somewhere else so uh another thing i made um also super lightweight mm -hmm. it's a panel carrier and basically the way it works is has these little slots in there beautiful 
And this is Gator Foam, and this is, I think it's balsa wood. It's the super lightweight wood that they make airplane models out of. And yeah, balsa. The original yeah. thickness of it is, you know, less than a quarter. Wow. Three sixteenths, maybe, maybe less, maybe just an eighth. Um, and so Amazing. both of these things I first designed when I first went on the Donald Journey, my Donald Journey traveling fellowship trip which was basically backpacking europe and so i wanted to really eliminate everything that was unnecessary mm -hmm. and i'm still using i'm still using the same box i'm still using the same panel carrier because uh they're good uh, and uh since a lot of people have asked me i figure one of the little things i could start doing is i start i started building and selling my own boxes and i don't do that regularly Every now and then I'll have a release. I'll make a bunch of boxes and I'll usually sell out of them pretty quickly. Beautiful. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's a lot of, it's been a lot of small things and um, some ways I'm reassessing my career, whether or not I want to start trying to get those bigger paydays. I, I don't know if that's the way you sounded. I remember asking Stapleton Kearns, the first guy I took a workshop with that made was like, okay, like, you know, being a landscape artist is possible. I'll go do what he says. I'll go learn to draw. And then I'll try to figure out how to be a landscape painter. I remember asking him why he makes a lot of big paintings and he shows a lot of big paintings at galleries instead of small ones. And he said something about elephant hunting. Uh, but yeah, if I'm trying to make bigger paintings now a bit more than mm -hmm. I used to. And so that's Brilliant. part of the reason I have that tray fountain. I have a bunch of other stuff in the studio that's like unfinished because like you said, I'm also, I just start a lot of things and I finish not that many of them. But it's it's still, it, I, I'm still going to say, it's great having this view uh, with these paintings behind you um, because it looks like one productive studio. That's for sure. Uh, I want to go back though um, to to what you were saying about social media, how that's been really important for you and, and instrumental. I, I'm not sure where, when you first came up on my radar, exactly where you were in follower count, but I, I remember checking back in and going, wow, uh, he's now, he's now cracked a hundred thousand followers on Instagram. Like that is something and it's growing and growing and growing. So what's, what's been your, your relationship like with Instagram and, and what are some of the things that you're doing there that have helped you gain such a massive following and really get that traction there? When you ask, uh, what my relationship with Instagram is like, is that whether or not it's like addictive and like, and that negative on like your personal life or it sort of drains you because it could that, be anything it is the that, case that's, for some people. That's, that's real for me. <laughs> I'll say that for sure. Yes. I have to be really careful with it personally. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a little bit of an addiction there. Uh, there's a little bit of a, something where like you're glued to your phone and it's not that healthy, but I think, uh, I th think, I can't blame a lot of it on Instagram. I think more of it has to do with my own life if I'm in a point where I am addicted to social media because I think that's a problem a lot of people deal with nowadays where they're just stuck to their phone and they can't get away and they 
a lot of people realize that it might not even have a positive impact on their life. Um, I've noticed that at points in my life where I have things to do every day, I'm meeting friends, I'm in an environment where I am really enjoying myself and I really have a lot of fun, then I'm barely going on social media in the first place. So I think, you know, maybe there's a dark side to social media where it can amplify the fact that you're not in a place that you really love to begin with. Uh, so the downside is that, you know, social media can have maybe a damage and some people might be more susceptible to this than others. The upside is that social media in many ways has eliminated gatekeepers. Uh, there, I'm sure a lot of people get annoyed because of changes to the algorithm or, oh no, this thing has like stopped working or this isn't happening now. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of upside to using social media. And one of the things, uh, one thing I heard, I don't know where I heard it, probably off of some YouTube video, off of some more business-oriented person, is if you're having an issue with your business, you either have a product issue or a marketing issue. If, as an artist you are having a hard time selling your paintings. Either your paintings aren't paintings that other people want and are interested in them, or people are not finding out about your paintings. So on the plus side, social media, it's like free reach. If you make paintings that people want to see, it's a really great way that people will be able to find them. There are a couple like little intricacies like, oh, like, you know, maybe sometimes Instagram flags your account for painting figurative work. And a lot of people have been really stressing over that because their algorithms can censor drawing or paintings. And that's been really frustrating to figurative artists. Or sometimes if you're using the same hashtags over and over again, Instagram has sort of changed their algorithm a few different times and hashtags are not what they used to be. It's a little bit more trickier now where Instagram is basically trying to figure out what people want to see, mm -hmm. meaning it's not necessarily an algorithm. It's more of, you have to think of an audience. So mm. Instagram is trying to combat the fact that social media and Instagram has become so saturated. People have potentially thousands of accounts that they're following. And if they were just, if you just saw everything like you used to back in the day where you just saw everything that is posted in chronological order, mm -hmm. it would probably feel overwhelming to a lot of people. And so if you go and read Instagram's blog or uh, watch some videos of some of the people that actually work at Instagram, like what they're trying to do on their platform, they're trying to be a bit more conscious and curate the platform a bit. And that makes certain little tweaks. And so, especially if you're using Instagram, there are a few things that are really important. Obviously, work that you put out that people really enjoy seeing. So when I'm doing a plein air painting, people really enjoy seeing the painting on location, on site, like right side by side. 
people like eat that stuff up. They love it. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's just like a photo of the painting, when I bring it back into the studio and I put it on my desk, it's not as interesting. It's not as engaging. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, like the quality of the painting. Um, for a while, reels were something. Instagram was almost artificially pushing reels. So that's where I had a really big increase. It was really insane. I went from June of 22. So last June, I think I started it at about six, six and a half thousand followers after posting on Instagram for like six years. I think I started my account in 2016 and it was very, very slow going. And the biggest part of that was I just didn't have a commitment to consistency. And in like May of 2022, I finally graduated college and I was like, ah, well, like actually like, what is it that I'm going to do now? And there were a lot of people that I was talking to people like Dina Brodsky, super social media savvy person, oh, yeah. a few other people that I had met within New York city, just through other artists that I knew. And so I was being really encouraged seeing some people's success on social media and seeing what certain people were doing. So I saw firsthand when Steven put on his Patreon. Uh, if you, I don't know if you've ever had Steven on the podcast or you've interacted with no, him. No, I should, I, I should reach out to him um, a little bit at the start of this year. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, I really admire Steven's work and, and he's, he's a fantastic artist and I've followed him for years. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's incredible guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. Um, you know, very, very figurative. Uh, mm -hmm. he, uh, he mostly sticks to portraiture. Um, but when I was at school, I saw him at the very starts of when he was taking a turn towards doing a lot more educational content. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's like, seems very straightforward. If you do it, they will come, uh, painting wise, not always the same thing. So, so, so you, you had grown from about six, 6,000 and then, and then when, when did that, that kind of, that, that flood of followers start coming in? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I ended that month somewhere between eight or nine, but mm -hmm. I had a couple reels that just, I, I, within like the next two months, I had four reels that were in the millions of views and nice. So I sometime by mid August that slowed down and I was somewhere in the seventies, which is just crazy. Amazing. Uh, I was, it was like one or 2000 followers a day, but I think a lot of those accounts may have been fake or spam, or it, it might've been that Instagram was suggesting my account to new accounts. So when you first create an account on Instagram, you are suggested uh, certain accounts to possibly look at and to follow. Um, and so for a very long time, not for a very long time, for a few months, reels were really effective. But for some reason this past year, I've noticed that reels haven't been doing that well, but my still posts have actually been doing really, really well comparatively to my reels. And so for me, that's even better because it's like, oh, okay, I don't have to edit a whole video like to post on Instagram. I could just like snap a photo after I'm done painting and it'll do just as fine. Uh, another big part of that though that I've realized is consistency. 
from the algorithm side, one of the important things for the Instagram algorithm is consistently putting out content because one of the important factors that decides who sees your posts is people that have already seen your posts recently and that have already engaged with them. And then also uh, Instagram at a certain point in your account, which might be, which might be a, a good reason to like not transition a personal account into an art account. That might be a bad idea. It's just my guess. But what Instagram does is there, there's a little function that I've noticed. I've noticed this when I've gone just on my own account on Safari, but not logged in. And you scroll down and then you see like similar accounts to this. And it's like Rachel Personet, Kyle Maud, Dennis Garodnici, uh, Mark D'Alessio. And it's like, oh, Instagram kind of puts you in a box. Uh, it tries to put a label onto your account. And then it sees if you have posts that it considers that are quality, that are engaging, that people see and that are like. It will suggest that to those through the Explore feed or for a time, even just putting them into their home feed through their following. And so by being conscious about what it is that you're doing, so I'm doing landscape paintings. And so by you know having pictures that you know people, for whatever reason, they like my paintings, which is just like to this day, it's funny to think like, ah, oh, like really? Like why? Because uh, they're awesome, dude. They're awesome. <laughs> Come on. No, but still, I mean, I don't. You know the feeling, right? I, it's I like, do. I do. Yeah, I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to wake up. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, you're like pinch yourself. Like really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I get to paint um, pictures. They told me I'd never be able to do this at school. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, yeah. I, I I remember my third grade teacher asking me what I'm gonna be like because I was telling her, well, I don't, I don't like writing. I don't want to write. And she's like, well, what are you gonna be? And I was like. I don't know. I'll be an architect. They don't have to write. They just draw buildings. And she's like, no. Well, I, and it turns out that I still have to write stuff, like whether I'm like scripting for YouTube or writing for emails or writing up a catalog or something. Writing is actually very, very important. But yeah, being able to paint is great. Yeah. Uh, and consistency on Instagram is massively important, massively important to, be able to put out work so that Instagram is able to identify, oh, this account makes paintings of beautiful landscapes. And then it can cross-reference what it knows about people that are consuming content because it's like, oh, you might be interested in this account. And that's how I think that's my best guess on how to work Instagram and how to actually like be able to grow on it. And for whatever reason, like I'm noticing like consistency, like every day, like 50 people unfollow me. I don't know if those are all those bots that I got, or if those are just natural people, or if there's something to Instagram where sometimes maybe people accidentally hit the follow button when they're watching reels, or if Instagram actually makes you follow some random person, you have no idea who they are. Hmm. Um, but yeah, consistency is a big thing to actually like growing it along with <laughs> Yeah, that that's one thing I still have not mastered is the consistency on social media. For me, it's so sporadic. <laughs> it's it's there. It's fits and starts really, 
But, you know, from talking to people like yourself and, and having other guests on, on the podcast who have done really well in social media, it, it seems like more and more that's something that I'm, I'm going to have to personally work out. It just, it, this, this is a thing. It's almost got to be part of our of our routine now that, you know, yeah, we're going to get up, we're going to paint a little something during the day. We've got to take care of a little bit of business stuff, but you've got to dedicate some time to that social media because that seems to be for a lot of us now, that engine that's driving everything that's, that's pushing those eyeballs to your work. It will lead to sales and maybe sales of prints, if not originals, uh, maybe bookings for your classes, your workshops, whatever it seems to be. But I don't know why it still feels like this. So just personally speaking, it still feels like um, like like a bit of a chore. It's like, oh, I've got to make a post. Uh, so I'm working, what I, what I was saying before about, you know, what's your relationship like? With me, it's kind of love-hate because I still haven't fully locked into this idea. No, no, this, this is access. This gives you access. This is actually vital. If we we're going to do it in the old school method, you'd still have to spend time on the phone talking to a gallery or going there or driving your painting to the actual place or, you know, putting on the exhibition. But now it's just like, dude, just get your phone out and make a post. <laughs> Come on. Mm -hmm. What do you complain do you, about? Uh, just do it. Personally, do you work with any galleries? Uh, no, I, I used to. I, I've, I've gone on and off for for a, a, a lot of years and, um, you know, like like social media, love hate relationship with the whole concept uh, and and so i haven't found anything that's really stuck per se but um yeah it's it's been it, it's it's been an interesting time it's been an interesting time for 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 trying to make that work because i i think i think that galleries and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this but i i think galleries are really fighting a a, a battle here because of social media, because of artists having so much access now, the galleries have really got to step up and try and get into this this game of adding even more value to that to that overall concept of representing artists. Um, whereas, you know, if an artist can just from their studio make a post and sell the painting from the studio or book the class at a workshop without having any middleman involved, there's a lot of artists that I know of that are just thinking, well, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I giving up a third, 45%, 50%, 60% in some cases, um, which is just extraordinary. You know, from, from a business standpoint, I thought, well, at least if I could take care of some of the legwork and I can diversify enough with my own income, maybe I don't need to do this. And, and I found that for, for the most part, for the last decade, I haven't needed to. So I, I, I think if the right opportunity came along, I would, I would certainly consider it. Never say never. But personally, it's just not the space that I'm in now. I'm now thinking about uh, <clears throat> going in again and doing my own gallery. I'd love to do that. And, uh, you know, I had a gallery for a season there. But, you know, as you were saying before, you know, the pandemic hit. And um, it was an interesting time for a lot of things. And, and that really shut that down. I was still running it as a studio, film studio. I was making all my YouTube videos from there. But the, um, the, the, as a gallery, it, it, was, it was just a bit of an experiment. Didn't really pan out, but I would, I would definitely consider doing that again in another place, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've got my eye on Queenstown, New Zealand. So watch mm -hmm. this space. Cool. Yeah. I don't really know uh, New Zealand, so when you say Queenstown, I'm sorry, but I don't. Oh, I, I you know, I, I imagine a lot of people wouldn't either. Okay, so so 
in in the United States, you have particular spots. And this is just something that that I that I've always thought about when it comes to business, you know, in 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 terms of making sales, you want to hit people where they live, where they work, where they play, you know, where they gather. Where are the people? You want to help for bears, go where the bears are. Um, and so in every country, just about, you're gonna have a place where people are congregating, the right kind of people that are gonna buy your your work. And um, for myself, it was it was this particular person that that appreciated the landscape, appreciated natural beauty. They were out there experiencing it already. And they had this sort of disposable income to be able to afford something. Um, and so this naturally for me, it started moving into areas that were naturally very beautiful, but maybe they had an outdoor leisure activity or something attached to it that was really important. You know, so when I was in Australia, it was the Margaret River region which was the south of Perth, about um, three hours south of Perth in Western Australia. And this was wine country, but it was also a world-class surfing spot with amazing beaches and, and amazing waves and all that. So I thought, well, I'll paint seascapes. And so I started selling a whole bunch of, you know, yeah, Australian scenes, but also you know, a lot of seascapes through that. But in the United States, you would have places like, um, I remember Santa Fe was, was an amazing spot for for particular works of the southwest when i was going through and i happened to look at some of the galleries i noticed that there was a real like culture there where this was really celebrated it was realism and it was it was stuff of that area but you're going to have spots like that you know uh, just about anywhere in any country um and so queenstown is a lot like um it's very similar to like whistler in canada it's it's uh it's a place where people go to ski it's a place where people go to see the amazing beauty. It's like it's an amazingly gorgeous spot in the South Island. Um, very mountainous, very picturesque, but it's also the highest real estate values in the country. You know, it's it's incredible. Like average house price now down there, I think, is around one and a half million dollars, which, um, you know, I've been priced way out of the market. But if I can get a, a toehold in there somewhere and try and get a painting to somebody, then it might be it might be a good direction. So that's just something I'm thinking about as a strategy. But my issue is just accumulating work and the time that it would take to do that. It's it's a bit of a struggle getting paintings together. I, I'm sure you you'd find this as well. That you know, painting takes time. It takes a lot to put it together. Yeah, um, totally hear you. I, I so I totally get what you mean by specific areas. I think like other areas in the U.S. that are probably that way or. Uh, Cape Cod or Nantucket or the Hamptons or Charleston or certain areas along Florida's coast. Uh, and those places aren't as beautiful as maybe Santa Fe or the Southwest. But then out West, you also have probably, uh, I think Jackson Hole might be that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's uh, one or two spots in Colorado that are probably similar to that because I know there are a few really successful like plein air events out in Colorado. Uh, galleries are a bit of a mixed bag as far as i can remember at this point i haven't been that right currently i'm not super active with galleries i remember at the tail end of 2020 i spent that year the pandemic just started in march i just ended school i was already focused on trying to figure out my own landscape paintings i was trying to get in touch with you know, working living artists that were like, you know, 10, 20 years ahead of me trying to visit their studios or seeing if they had any advice or just trying to 
figure it out that way and applying to some juried shows. But eventually I got contact. I got in touch with three different galleries and that end, that last quarter of 2020 was actually a pretty decent experience where I was able to send work out and it sold. And I thought to myself, it, it was like this first, first start or maybe it was sort of a false start thinking back, but I remember thinking to myself, okay, if I have this type of quarter four times a year, that's like a normal job. It'll be fine. Mm. And then what ended up happening was the next year, 2021, I think from gallery sales, I made less the entire year than I made in those couple of months at the very end of 2020. I don't know if there's like a little bump when you first start working with a particular gallery that, you know, they have particular clients that always love collecting one piece from every artist. And so it's easy to sell a new face. I don't know if it was that tail end of the pandemic where people were still in their homes and they were looking at buying a lot of art. I've heard mixed signals, but I've heard that it was a really good time for selling art because a lot of people were in their homes. Uh, but when it comes to galleries, I realized that it's a really tight balance between being productive, making a lot of paintings, making paintings that are in a specific known style where you know, you're expected if you're working with a gallery that someone walks in and they could identify your painting without looking at the name tag because you have an identifiable style or voice or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, for for anyone that's in like an academy or an atelier that's painting just like everyone else, that's one of the biggest challenges when you're in that. You know, no one wants another head study in the style of all your fellow students from a gallerist perspective verbatim just repeating what i've heard uh harsh truth but one of the difficult things that we've got to like navigate through sure. um and so you got to figure out you know your own style you've got to figure out how to be productive and then you have to figure out how to not be how how to prevent it from being soul-sucking and still having something creative because if you just start painting the same subject matter over and over again that's what the gallery wants well that kind of can be pretty boring to a lot of artists really fast hmm. so and i personally had an experience where i made this one painting and there, there was something about the process of that painting that it was an okay painting it was a good painting but it left me feeling unfulfilled and a little empty, just the actual way that I made that painting where it's like, oh, well, and that was one painting that got me in the door with one gallery that I was working with and they really liked it and they asked for more and I made a second one. But after I made the second, I was like, gosh, I really don't enjoy making paintings this way. And maybe if I had a specific temperament, I could have been more successful, but there's an aspect to... I want to try the projects and do the things that I want to do. And so it's another reason that galleries might be a bit difficult. Uh, I've really transitioned into trying to work Instagram in my favor, where it's mostly through Instagram. I've sold a lot of small paintings and a couple larger paintings, mm. a lot of small paintings and 
doing a lot of smaller paintings is also a little bit helpful for that Instagram algorithm. Cause if you do a small painting, you finish it in a day or you finish it in two days, that's a new post. And so that's a lot of volume as opposed mm -hmm. to if you're like working on one painting for a few weeks, mm -hmm. which was this painting. But probably if you go back on my Instagram in the past few weeks, I've probably reposted that painting maybe 10 times in, and there are different commentaries every time I post it. Uh, like one piece of like content making advice. I think you're familiar with uh, Gary V. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I think I saw either looking at one of his posts, like, you know, cause it shows you uh, the people you follow, if they interact with their posts or if you look at their account and you see the mutuals um, really, really smart guy. One of the bits of advice that I got from watching one of his videos that always stuck with me about making content is to get away from the idea that you're making something and get into the idea that you're just recording something. So we're doing something every day as artists. Are we varnishing a painting? Are we packing a painting? Are we doing the preparatory of the drawing of the painting? Mm -hmm. Not all of your posts have to be a finished painting. Yeah. So like just yesterday, what I posted was that painting and the side-by-side -side of the plein air. And I was able to use it to shout out that I was doing a print sale of that painting and that was one thing that I did. And obviously uh, at one point I fin I posted the full painting and at two different occasions, I just posted some really nice detail shots. And at one point I made a post about why I use lead white for painting studio paintings. And at another painting at another post, I was uh, when I signed the painting for that, for some reason, reels of me signing paintings seem to do decently. So I'll do some of those. Uh, I've never done like a turnaround painting, but I was thinking it might just be super funny to do oh, it the with old that turnaround. frame. Yeah. Cause it's so heavy. It, it would be comical. Uh, but I haven't <laughs> been the bullet yet. <laughs> wow. But, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can, you know, figure out how to show your work yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. I want to see so somebody do the turnaround. I, 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 this has probably been done before. Maybe I've seen it before. I can't remember, but you know what social media is like. There's so much coming at us, but doing the turnaround painting where the artist picks it up, turns it around, but it's always the back of the painting. You're like, oh, dang it. You just, you just can't do it. You're caught in this time loop. Just continue to show the back of the painting and getting quite frustrated oh, with it, but it'd be funny. Um, but I, I, yeah. Okay. That that's really interesting. It's interesting also what you were saying there from from Gary V, um, because I think what a lot of us tend to do, and 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 I do this for sure, is is put so much pressure on making each piece of content as impactful, as polished, as meaningful. And one thing I found is I was just like mixing a bit of color on the palette, and then I just I would just held my phone up, mixed a bit of color on the palette, put a few brush strokes on. That was it. That was it, and and the the that reel did just as well as those heavily produced edited reels. That I have to pay my editor to produce them. He does a great job. We'll continue to do that, but you know, just having a little something uh, to to share, just a little something. So uh, that's going to be my takeaway from this, um, and much more, of course. But that that really, I, I personally find that encouraging. I hope others listening do find that encouraging as well. Just post, just put it out there. It'll be an absolute crime for us to have Patrick Okrasinski on the podcast and not actually talk about the painting, about the making of the paintings. Um, oh, yeah. 
I caught a little snippet of your conversation with Eric Rhodes, where you were um, painting something live with him. And you're also talking in a previous conversation about master copies. Mm. Now, I, I just recently started a couple of master copies of my own. I came away just head blown, just wow, okay, that was great. And now I'm thinking about the next master copy I want to do because I learned so much. Tell me about your relationship with master copies, how that process went for you and some of the artists that you chose to copy. Oh, gosh. Uh, master copies are like the foolproof exercise, I think. Like if there's one exercise you could do, and there are different variants of how you can do a copy of a master painting. Uh, some of my master copies i have it just right under my desk because um i have a lot of things just like in arms reach for my desk because one of the things i do with my patreon is like one-on-one -on -one mentorships so i take things out and just like show them to the camera uh one of the ways i do master copies is um i haven't done them in a while but at one point i would do dozens and dozens and dozens of little compositional master copies oh come on wow that is great you know, maybe five minutes. It's more about exposing yourself to the paintings, really looking, really observing. And there, there's something more ethereal about master copying that I wish I had like a, a better way to explain it. But the best way that I can explain what master copying does for you as an artist is with this like little analogy or little story from some art book from a hundred something years ago. And it's about how do you know what good wine is? And it's really, apparently it's really, really difficult to describe like what good wine is. But if you go to a little village and you find a peasant, because those are still around when that book was written. Uh, and you know, th this guy, he, he, drinks like an everyday wine like he'll have his wine and it's always been good to him and he always thought it was fine and you know he likes it and he drinks it and then if instead you give him a really really good wine i don't really know what makes the wine good but if you take away his normal wine and you give him good wine and by the time he gets used to that after a month of drinking this really really good wine every single day if you show him the bad wine it'll taste bad he won't want it anymore uh i don't know how you can develop like good taste in painting or maybe it's your aesthetic your thing but i think one of the important things that and maybe it's just like a learned taste and so maybe it's not the case but in my personal work uh looking at master paintings i think it helps me in a very subtle, almost indescribable way, it helps you develop your own taste and sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it's like so ethereal. It's so out there. Like that's like not a very tangible piece of advice. But so A, I think that's one of the best things about master copying. And then B, it's foolproof because when you're copying a master painting, painting is somewhat of a visual language and you're already copying it having been translated excellently 
you're not trying to reinvent the wheel. You're studying the wheel and you're trying to figure out what makes it so good. And the thing about art and painting, uh, you, know, you pick who you're doing a master copy of. You obviously pick the people that you are inherently drawn to whose work that you already love. And then you get to learn exactly what they were doing and you get to really study their painting and you can see the types of brush marks that they're making, or maybe the way that they're accenting color, or, you know, maybe the way that they're building up a painting or their use of texture, or you'll notice different ways that they've applied textures. Uh, and you can get this from just looking at paintings too, but uh, something about actually sitting with a painting and whether it's just like a little thumbnail sketch of a comp something compositional, that's just a couple inches big and you're just scribbling there. There's something about actually sitting down and the process of trying to break things down that will really, really help you. Uh, some of the other effects that I've had in person of not necessarily cop. Well, I, there was one copy I did in person in the Metropolitan of one of Albert Bierstadt's paintings. And I know you love Albert Bierstadt, so we've got that in common. Uh, I got into their copyist program. Great, amazing, highly recommend it to anyone that has the opportunity to do it. You get to copy the painting in person. And I was able to like really stand at the painting and really look at the painting, look at it from all different angles, look up at it to see it catch the glare. And I started noticing like really, really subtle things that he was doing that I believe he was uh, painting in sectionally, possibly even creating a prepared ground in certain areas of the painting, or maybe it was just applying the paint in specific, specific ways in the first layer so that the second layer, when he was adding the light over the rocks, the texture would catch in a specific way. And that was juxtaposed between right underneath those rocks. You had such still, such smooth, like such a smooth surface of still water reflecting that. And then you look at the sky above it and you see all these vertical strokes and you could tell, oh, he was probably using like a massive chip brush to paint that sky. He was painting it vertically. So a little bit of light would catch in those clouds. And then he was controlling the texture between like the depth and and then I was just looking, not actually copying, but looking at Emil Carlson paintings, mm -hmm. some of his landscape paintings. There was a show in a nearby museum and just really looking at the types of marks he was making over time. At first, I didn't really realize and didn't know how he was making those marks. But over time, I realized a lot of those were a combination of building up texture using a very heavy linen or burlap weave and a lot of palette knife work in sort of flatly applying the palette knife, not scraping, but loading up the palette knife with paint and then holding it like parallel to the surface and sort of dragging it very, very lightly. So it would only catch in a few different ways and that would create this more of a blobby type of texture. And then you see the way that he really tastefully juxtaposes that with like a, a brush mark of like purple and it becomes a beautiful wave or seascape or a moonlight seascape. And all, all, all that comes back to 
the fact that painting is somewhat of a visual language. Some people equate painting as visual poetry. You know, we're making images, but the way that we make them, uh, there, there are a lot of different things that you could do. You know, the sky's the limit on how you actually want to make the paintings, how you want them to look like this type of surface that you want. And I think it's really important to expose yourself to paintings and see different paintings. And I think it, we're all better for it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I came away from, from a couple of those master copies that I did, you know, it, very much. I, I, I could echo what you've just said there, you know, a deeper appreciation and understanding for how these artists put the, the paintings together. But I, I, what I wasn't prepared for is how that would in, then inform my process. And I'm still unpacking that lesson, but it's a lesson that's really lingering for me. It's still there in my mind going, okay, what would Lucy Kemp Welch do here with this particular scenario? What would Arthur Wardle do here? One thing as well, like I, I've always been accused of being very detailed. Maybe, maybe I'm guilty of that. But, um, and I appreciate this with your work, this beautiful freshness and looseness that you have, um, just the right amount of information, just what's necessary. The compositions are incredibly simple as well for the most part. They're very elegant in their overall design. And one thing that I, I've, I've always done over the years is I just go, I've got a little empty space here. I'm just going to put something in here. I'm going to put details. And I just start adding those details, get them out. But um, this is the thing from doing those master copies, realizing how little is in some of these paintings. You know, and, and often what happens, um, the beauty of, of looking at museums and galleries, what happens is we're looking at tiny little reproductions, whether it's on our phone or in a book, they're tiny little reduced copies. And so we can really get a false sense of what these old works were like. But when you see the original and it's at scale, and now you, as you were describing the texture of Bierstadt, really jealous, man, I... I I can't remember ever seeing a Bierstadt in the flesh. I'm sure I have, but I, I, I just can't for the life of me. I must have been when I was really young and still living in the States and it wouldn't have meant anything to me at that that early age. I've just been like, oh, cool. Um, but I, I wasn't at that that stage in my life where I was like, that's Bierstadt. Let's sit here for three hours and actually study this thing. Um, but you can appreciate so much more by just seeing the work in the flesh. And... and if we can get, like I found with those master copies, the ones I chose were ones that I specifically experienced, you know, in the gallery. And, and so, yeah, man, it's, I, I, I can certainly, um, yeah, vouch for everything you're saying there. I think it's super important. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing way more personally. Um, let's, let's just jump into a, a, a bit more about your painting, your painting process. Plain air seems to be something that's very important for you. How, how has that informed your process, maybe dovetailed with some of the things that you're working on? Because how, how do you find that goes from working from direct observation out in the field and then bringing that back into the studio? I think it's easier for me to do paintings in plein air because if I tell myself that I'm going out to the location, I'm going to force myself to paint that day. And it's so easy to just not on like when it comes to studio painting. And there's a little voice in the back of my head that I, I've tried to stamp this voice out because it's very, very unhelpful. But 
at one point, one of the reasons I have so many unfinished paintings is because I started all of these paintings when I was just in my first year out of school. And I had this idea of, okay, I can start them outside. I can finish them inside. And I just never got around to finishing them inside because it was just never as much fun as actually being out there. Mm. And it it's easy. And sometimes I still touch up paintings sometimes when I come inside, but I always try to finish the painting in person. On For me, on just a very, very practical level, it's just much more enjoyable to actually paint on location. And on to get into some of the other reasonings, the main thing that I will fix when it comes to touching up a painting indoors after a plein air painting, a small plein air study indoors after having done, gone outside is if I see something's wrong with like the drawing. Because the other thing I've noticed is that there, there's something when you're forcing yourself to work on location, you're working from life, you're not working from reference, where you're working from the three-dimensional and you're working from the round and it's you're the person that has to reduce those to the flat image and create that painting uh so when it comes to using photo reference to tweak your paintings or to make studio paintings the only thing that i'm really comfortable trusting from a photo is the drawing the way i went about making like my trevi fountain is when I first started the painting, I still had the small painting of it and it sold and I eventually I sent it off and then I went to travel and do some things and came back home and finished that painting in the last few weeks. The way I started the painting is I spent two days trying to capture the big impression that I captured within my plein air painting as closely as I could on the finished studio painting. Mm -hmm. And then I had a really good photo of the actual painting where the colors were pretty accurate uh, because, you know, one of the things that you need to learn after you become an artist is how to take good color, you know, polarized lights, color picker, all that stuff. I had a really good photo that I was still able to look back on. I had reference of the actual statue off of my iPhone, not even a special camera, just, but your iPhone takes pretty decent, like 4,000 by 3000 megapixel images. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's pretty good enough for yeah. a lot of the drawing details, especially if you're not going in and painting all these details. I think personally, I think what you were describing earlier might just be personal tendency. I've always had the tendency of being a little bit lazy. And so yeah, in my own work, one of the things I've tried to do is try to tighten up a bit. Um, but I think that's just my personal temperament of not of like not wanting to sit down and really render things out because that's never the part I enjoy. Uh, I'm not sure if that like has to say anything artistically. I think that's just like me being lazy in myself. <laughs> um, I still think it has a wonderful. I've tried effect. to tighten up. Yeah. I'm sorry. I still think it has a wonderful effect. The, the way the way you the, the the final aesthetic of of your work it's got a beautiful freshness i mean it's uh, oh, it's yeah. it's really wonderful yeah there 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 you know there are other painters that i look at too that um you know 
I don't, it, you know, when it comes to painting, there are different aesthetics though. So I don't of necessarily course. think that painting loosely is the only way to do it. Um, well, it's, it's just, no, it's, it's just interesting to hear, hear about this because I mean, obviously the plein air side of things is so important for you. Um, and you can see the way, I don't know, this is something that I found with plein air because my plein air work is, is much looser, of course. And it's not always the technique that I'm carrying into the studio, but it is the, um, it's it's the it's the color it's a bit of the drawing but it's also just that experience i i find that for me plain air is a lot like an elaborate form of note taking where your your mind your eye has to go over all these different aspects of the landscape and you're almost capturing the most detailed notes you can think of like a picture's worth a thousand words so they say but even though the the studio work might take on a very different aesthetic I feel like I know that mountain. I know those trees. I know that that lighting dynamic. And so I'm able to draw upon that with a little bit more authority beyond what that photograph would be able to tell me. Um, and I always appreciate so much more, you know, with my own work, doing more of, of paintings from plein air. A and if I've got a little bit of supplemental reference material, bonus, because we've always got a camera on us, right? With our phone in our pocket, or, or if we're lucky enough, maybe a DSLR that we've carried on the trip. But um, it's, it's, it's then what you could do from that, because I, I just find that after having done that planar painting, you're drawing on that experience, that richness starts to come through. Um, that's just personally something that I found. But it's it's super interesting, man. I, I I love geeking out. This is my the favorite thing about the podcast is that I just get to geek out with other artists about what they do, how they do it, why they do it. It's so cool, man. It's so cool. Yeah. So uh, my big goal in my own work personally, is, and I have a few of these in. I have a lot of these in my studio. I have a painting just underneath uh, my Trevi fountain. Oh wow, that is. Wow. Wow. Stunning. That, that was plein air. Yeah. Uh, and now I, I want to finish it. And so next to it, that's actually a 16 by 20. That one, it's on its side, but that's mm -hmm. a 16 by 20 from Sedona. Uh, Beautiful. This was a 12 by 14 that I started. And over there is a, all three of those were plein air. And there's just something I like about working on the paintings in person that I, I don't know, they're exhausting. It's, it takes a lot of energy to get them out there, mm. but in my own personal work, if I have the chance to just make really, really big paintings outside, I'm going to try to go for that and go and try to take it because there's something about there's there's just something about actually being outside that in my mind it's, it's just there's just something about it that i like more about the paintings that come out when mm -hmm. i do them plein air there's something about when i've tried to paint paintings entirely from a reference i end up just not really it just doesn't really feel right for me Sometimes I can upscale a study and sometimes I can pull it off and sometimes I can't. And I think that Trevi was probably the best upscaling that I've pulled off using the study and some reference. 
it's it's tough to really say why. I know there are some people that are like really hardliners when it comes to using photos. Like, don't use photos; it ruins something. Blah blah blah. Mm. <laughs> That's a terribly mean impression. Uh, <laughs> I I was never a real hardliner for that, but I I sympathize a little bit with them because I've noticed in my own work that I I have to agree that the paintings that I find most enjoyable are the ones that are like based off of like a plein air experience. And the more I can get plein air, the better it is. But there's a little bit, a little bit of that tweaking in the studio really helps when you've got the painting like 90% plein air. And then there's a little bit of just being able to see it in like a good lighting and saying, Oh, okay. I need to like cut this edge down. I need to, clean these things up maybe add some texture in here to do a few different things because sometimes working in plein air it's actually like hard to actually see your painting and you know you might take a painting inside and it looks totally different yeah uh it's tough. It, it is i i gotta say one more time as well like it, it is cool seeing your studio with these incredible works. Uh, it, it's like a bateman studio i need to i need to get a better one so so are you in a basement at the moment Oh yeah. Did, it's, uh, um, did I hear you right? It's a basement studio. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's like the ceilings are like eight feet tall. It's super small. How do you go with, with working under such a low ceiling? Like what are you doing for your, your studio lighting at the moment? What, what are you painting under? So the, the lights are LED, like there are six LED lights that, you know, it's not bad. And then mm -hmm. I also have, I bought a, newer n-e-w-e-r-r -R light and i realized that instead of pointing it directly at the painting i can point it at the white ceiling and that ah. sort of illuminates the room yes, and yes, it yes. gives a little bit more ambience but uh the, the color temperature is at about 550 if i remember correctly right it's not ideal but it's yeah. worked fine for the most part Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, I, I've always struggled with low ceilings. Every, every space that I've moved into that was like a, a residential type setting always had that, that low ceiling. And, um, mm. it, it's, I mean, ideal is getting that natural light, but, and the height, but I'm about to move into a situation where I'm going to go back into a low ceiling, back to the same studio that I was in in 2017. Mm back to uh Rachel's parents house. <laughs> so so that's going to be interesting because we've sold our house and we're we're building our new one and uh it's going to take Ooh. some time so we're moving back in with the with the in-laws. That's okay. We love nice. them and we get along well. But uh yeah, so I'm thinking about what are what are some interesting ways that I could get over or overcome that uh that low ceiling space and just looking at how well that lit this space is behind you. But I can see those little those little ceiling um what do you call them? little ceiling recesses where you're, where you've got a, obviously a spotlight or a downlight coming through. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, th those are just like the lights that are installed. Uh, and those are just like flash bulbs or light bulbs in there. Okay. I do okay. have a uh, soft box lamps that I have mm -hmm. like that can be sort of on the side, more directional. Mm -hmm. uh, and I sit painting down and usually my painting isn't that far up close to the easel so that also helps if i'd be standing it would be a little bit more difficult to have decent lighting because mm -hmm. some of the paintings you can see that the tops of them are pretty dark in my studio yeah and yeah 
Amazing yeah. frames too, by the way. Uh, are you collecting antique frames or are you getting replicas Ooh. made or at, where are you getting your frames from? They are so cool. Ah, gosh, they're, they're, they're antiques. Uh, they, I, I've learned that there are like levels to framing. So the best frame, a proper antique frame is wood carved through and through very tough to find mm -hmm. in very good condition often expensive in the end of the 19th century one of the technologies that proliferated in framing was mold making using something called compo oh, yeah. which is a putty and so at the end of the 19th century there are a lot of relatively affordable compared to the having a craftsman carve the frame throughout. You could just make a bunch of different mold ornaments, glue them onto the wood base, and then gild that. And you come out with a gold frame that looks pretty similar to a hand carved frame. And so those are the frames that I've tried to find. Sometimes I found them through Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist. Wow. Uh, most most of the frames I have are uh, from uh, like online auctions. Uh, I I almost don't want to like tell people that because oh, okay. be against me. Yeah, but keep I'm, that under your hat then. Okay, I've, I've bought a lot of frames <laughs> and I probably shouldn't buy too many more, but sometimes you can find really good deals on online auctions like live auctioneers or. <clears throat> uh, I think live auctioneers is the one that I've used. And so uh, like these paintings that I have and over here, I have a master copy of George Innes's. That's oh, like cool. my least uh, more messy part of the studio that I don't usually have on camera. That's a master copy of William Trust Richards. Uh, the other paintings. Oh, and behind this is a master copy of Isaac Leviton things. And I guess that's a master copy of Fontaine Latour of a little flower, floral painting of his. But awesome. the other ones are originals that I made because sometimes the frames are in really wonky sizes. But I've, I've seen you do something similar though. Well, I make some weird frames myself, but I, I try to find replicas where I can. It's very difficult to get antiques here in New Zealand and in Australia because mm -hmm. we just, there there hasn't been the history here. Um, it, They're relatively, I guess you could say relatively new uh countries and because the population is so small like that that group that would buy these types of mm -hmm. frames and works it also really fell out of favor there wasn't a lot of people that were interested in that but i've always loved to frame my work exactly like what i'm seeing you do there in your studio i just think it's beautiful absolutely beautiful like big ornate gold frames that's where yeah. it's at man but um, i mean we just want to make it look like a museum right oh dude 100 <laughs> absolutely i i yeah, I still think about the 19th century collection at the um, NGV in, in Melbourne and walking through just going, man, I, I want my paintings to look like that. I want to be framed like that. I want it to look like that. It's just so, so cool. Um, but now like, I, I'm going to be getting into like making my own molds, ornamentation and that sort of stuff because mm. I, I haven't been able to find it. So I've got like a frame file with all the ornate corners and center patterns and running patterns and the slips and all that stuff. So I thought, well, I, I'm, I can sculpt. I might sculpt my own and make some flexible rubber molds and 
start popping these out on the frames and and see what I can do. Um, maybe nice. using some modern materials, uh, but three D printing. No, I, I well, I who knows? Never say never. I I I I haven't gone that far because I still like to make stuff. I, there's something about punching a button that seems a little bit off to me, but who knows? I might make a few and go, yeah, give me the 3D printer. This is taking too long. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, so I think the main way that they were able to make the ornaments was having a circular mold and rolling it over a piece of putty rather than making uh, just castings, like mm -hmm. linear castings. And so that way, especially when you have some of these very, very repetitive, you know, like some of the, some of the ornaments that you see on corners are usually like single yes. things, but then some of the more repetitive stuff, they had a rolling, uh, yeah. I don't know the name of it. For sure. Yeah. It's almost but like a cylinder corners, seal in a way were, that you'd, yeah. you'd roll it out and you'd be able to see it. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, if you carve, if you carve those, then you make the mold of it, then you have the mold forever. Right. That's it's it. It's going to be awesome. That's it. Yeah. Hopefully. Super cool. <laughs> Man, this has been so much fun geeking out about art, hearing more about your work, your story, and how this has all come together. It's it's fantastic and really great to finally connect with you properly. Where can people um, see more of your work? Where would you like people to go to visit you online and, and check out more of what you have to offer? Yeah. Uh, so biggest thing is Instagram. That's the thing I'm most active on. And so my Instagram account is Patrick Okra okra like the vegetable and that's short for my full name okrasinski uh, probably important to know uh, my website just patrickokrasinski.com uh, not super active on that website but sometimes i post updates to upcoming workshops a lot of the workshops that i do this past year i've done seven workshops six of which I just organized on my own because there are plenty of workshops. And so I said, Hey, does anyone want to paint with me in Florence, Italy? Or does anyone want to do a seascape land, a uh, seascape painting workshop with me? And I organized them on my own. So if you go on my Instagram and you go on my link tree, or also if you go on my website and you go under workshops and mentorship, I have a mailing list for workshops and then i also have a mailing list for collectors when i'm doing sales and stuff like that sometimes i sell my small plein air paintings um and then recently this past year i've started my own youtube channel which i'm trying to focus on and trying to offer more of my view on things on and you know it's small and i struggle to be consistent with that because that's a lot of effort to like make a youtube video rather than just like a little instagram post oh goodness yeah um yeah, but you know, there's that. And recently, a little bit of teaching through starting a Patreon. And so that's up and coming and looking forward to trying to make some more things like that and free me up to make the paintings that I want to try to make and just share my insights through that way. I think social media is cool that it lets us almost like crowdsource uh, what it is that we're doing rather than focusing on keeping any one patron happy like the old days. Uh, we're able to just find a lot of people that are able to support us in really small ways. And I think that's really, really cool. So Instagram, studio sales like that, Patreon, small workshops. And, you know, if you sign up with one of the workshops that I organize on my own, usually I try to make them a little bit more affordable because I don't have to share a cut with anyone, which sometimes depends. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but that's my plug uh, if anyone wants to find me. Perfect. Perfect. 
Well, Patrick, it's been a blast. Thank you so much uh, for being on the creative Andrew, endeavor. The pleasure was mine. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast and a huge shout out and thank you to Patrick Okrasinski for joining me. Now, if you want to follow Patrick right now on Instagram, I hope you do. I highly recommend it. You'll be just as inspired as I am. Then he can be found at Patrick Okra. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-K-O-K-R-A. And also on his website, Patrick Okrasinski. Com. And that last name again is O-K-R-A-S-I-N-S-K-I. And in addition to this, Patrick also has a Patreon page where he shares insights with his students following there. I highly recommend it. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and you got something out of this installment of the Creative Endeavor podcast, then once again, please leave me a rating or a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It makes an enormous difference to the show. And if ever you want to see the full video version of this episode or any of the other episodes of the Creative Endeavor podcast, you'll find those in the podcast library on Tish Academy. Simply go to tish.academy and you'll find that top linked in the show notes. Well, I'm going to get out of here and get back to painting. Thanks so much for spending this time with us here. I'll see you again in another episode of The Creative Endeavor. Mm-hmm.